Amen. Well, good morning again, Calvary. All right, make sure I get the water out now. So, as you may have seen in your bulletin or even uh, got from what Greg said, we're going to look into what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer today. And we're going to be looking at it in the book of Matthew. So, if everyone would turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're actually going to start at uh, verse 5. So a couple of things that that we need to establish. Um, There's another passage in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 11, which has very similar words and similar prayers. It's also called the Lord's Prayer, like if you look in a header in most Bibles. It's actually a separate uh, time in the ministry of Jesus where he gave that. So this it isn't, it's not a parallel account. So just keep that in mind. The, the sermons, well, the lessons were actually given for two different purposes. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is responding to a question. Lord, teach us how to pray. Here, it's, he gives this model in the middle of a sermon. And so I actually just want us to consider the context of the sermon and why the application of this prayer uh, may sound a little different than if we considered it from Luke where the disciples want to know how to pray, and he's giving them this. And that actually happened later on in his ministry. So by the time they ask that question, he's already preached this sermon to them. So this, uh, this Lord's Prayer is part of a larger section in Matthew typically called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, Matthew records five sermons um, that Jesus gives, and this is the first of those five. And it covers a lot. And it's probably the most famous sermon um, in and out of the church that Jesus preached. A lot of the words that even unbelievers will quote from or they know are just things that float around in society that Jesus has said come from come from here. You know, we get the Beatitudes in chapter 5. Uh, we're told to let our light shine among men. And you know you have that, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Yeah. All right. This is why I'm not in the front of the mic when we do the songs. Here. But you get it. Many people have heard that, that song. Um, so he starts off in this sermon uh, by giving an exposition of the law. He's addressing a lot of what Israel was seeing at the time with um, the Pharisees and the scribes. And in fact, when he's teaching on the law, he tells the the audience, tells his disciples and others listening, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't see the kingdom. And you have to understand that they were the most righteous people externally. They, they are the ones who set up what righteousness looks like. They took some things from the Old Testament uh, and then built a whole system that went way beyond a lot of things in the Old Testament. And sometimes they actually circumvented what the Bible actually said, or what, what, they, what their scripture said. And so Jesus confronts a lot of those things. But in the minds of the Israelites, these were the most righteous people that you can find. 
Everything they did outwardly made it appear as though they were the most godly. And then he hits the people with, you have to be more righteous than them. And then after explaining what the heart behind the law actually is, what we heard about 20 sermons uh, from in in the spring from our pastor, he says things like, you heard that, that you're not supposed to commit adultery. But even if you look at someone to lust after them, you've committed adultery in your heart. So he corrects it and says, even though you avoid the behavior, if every desire and impulse is there and you act on that impulse but just stop it at a certain point, you stop it where people can see so they don't get to see you fulfill it, you still, your heart is still wicked. And that's what God is looking at. He said, you've heard that you shouldn't murder. But I say, even if you call your brother a fool, you've already murdered him in your heart. And you're just as guilty under the law. And then he ends chapter 5 by saying, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Which, of course, now they're starting to see how impossible that is. Then he uses chapter 6 to address a lot of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And then in chapter 7, he ends it with what true salvation looks like. And so in the middle of that, we find our passage for today. And before we look into it, I'm going to say a word of prayer. God, help us to know how to pray. Help us to know how to approach you. Help us to have the right mindset, the right heart, and see that it's much more than just the words that come out of our mouths. Lord, we pray that we would not fall into the traps that the Pharisees fell into. We pray that we would be growing and learning in this every day. And I pray, God, that as we look at your word together, that you will bless this time and that you will speak to each one of us. And I ask this for the sake of Christ. Amen. Let me just say straight up that the probably, I know there probably are others, but for me, the most conviction that, that I can get is by studying and teaching or preaching on prayer. Because I always see where I'm lacking. And pretty much it's everywhere. But there are certain things that I say, wow, look at what I do. Look at how I treat God. Look at how I come to God. And every time I study a passage on prayer, I'm convicted. And it's no different with with this one. So when we look at chapter 6, we start at verse 5. And Jesus says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they're that they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Let's stop there. So there's a couple of things that he brings out. First, 
I love it here because, and he says it in others in chapter, in, sorry, in verse 2. He says, uh, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. And then a few more times he uses this word hypocrites. And that just seems to be the title now that he, that he gives them. And so I think we need to understand what, hypo, what a hypocrite is or hypocrite was here from a, a biblical sense. It's not someone who is striving after holiness but then fails at some point. It's not someone who is trying to be like Christ but is imperfect. A lot of times we, we throw that word around. You know, someone wants to live a godly life and then we see them fall in an area. We say, they're a hypocrite because they came here and talked about holiness, but yet they didn't live it out. That's just an imperfect person who's not yet in a glorified body. So there, there is a difference between what the Bible calls a hypocrite. And the word actually, uh, it goes back to the theater. And a hypocrite in, in these times was someone who would actually wear a mask. And if anyone's familiar with like theater, you see like the symbol that's usually used are those two kind of masks that are like, you know, kind of coming together. I'm not artistic, but, you know, like two masks coming together. Well, those types of masks that they would actually wear. And so instead of trying to play the part and look like a sad person, they would just put on a sad mask. And that would be, they could be smiling under the mask, and you can't tell. And that is the word that the Bible used to describe a hypocrite. Someone who is one thing on the inside, but wears a mask in front of others so they can appear to be what they're not. That is a hypocrite, and that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about someone who's striving for holiness and then falls because they're human or because there's some lesson that they didn't learn yet. It's, he's talking about someone who is rotten on the inside but wants to look good on the outside, like a tomb that you clean and it's whitewashed but filled with the bones of dead men. That is what a hypocrite is, and that's what he's talking about here. <clears throat> but he said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Why? Well, one thing is they pray so they can be seen by men. He says that they stand in the synagogues and pray. And they go in the street corners and they pray. And here when he talks about street corners, the word in Greek that's used is talking about the widest possible intersections. It's almost like they go into the town square and pray. It's not just saying they stand on the corner of this street here where only three cars go by. It's talking about they go to the busiest place in town, the widest possible intersection, so they can be seen by the most people possible when they pray. And that is the purpose. And if your purpose behind your prayers is to be seen by men, then Jesus said, then you have your reward. Because that's all you were seeking. You weren't seeking for whatever you were praying about. You were seeking the attention that came from your wonderful, beautiful, flowery prayers. And when you get that attention, then you have your reward. And he said, don't be like them. Don't, don't pray like them. He said we should pray in secret. Now, I actually remember uh, I was working a very long time ago in a call center. Um, yes, I used to answer phones back in the day, which is probably why I don't now. Um, but I was working in a, in a call center at a, at a um, stock transfer company. And we found out you know, just through talking, there were several Christians there. 
And so we said we wanted to, you know, have like a Bible study one day and then have like a prayer together the other. And I remember talking to a uh, lady there who, at the time, she was probably older than, like probably a generation ahead, maybe like 20 years older or something like that. And she just said, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to join the prayer because we're praying out in the open. You know, we weren't going, we didn't have a space we could go to. So we were saying, we're going to go outside under this tree and just pray for a part of our lunch. And she said, no, because we're praying out in the open. And the Bible says that we shouldn't do that. And while I appreciate the concern, I'm not going to, you know, that was what, how she was convicted. But the idea here more is the attitude behind it. Because there are prayers in public. Jesus prayed in public. Others in the Bible prayed in public. It's not the idea of praying in public. It's, it's why you are praying. To be seen by men. Right? And, and in verse 7 he even says that uh, they pray in meaningless repetition for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So it's the purpose behind the prayer. So you can have a, a prayer closet that's public. You don't have to say, like, I can't have my, my husband or my wife near me or my kids near me. Now, that may be wise because you don't want to be distracted. And, and there is something to be said about even praying in private when no one is looking. But that isn't the only time that you can pray. So I don't want anyone reading this and saying, like, oh, I can't pray in public. I can't pray. Once three people join your prayer circle when we have prayer meeting, it's like, oh, this is kind of public now. It's too many. I can pray with one, maybe two people, not when a third person comes and it's four of us. You know, I can't do that. So um, he's really talking about the attitude here. So in verse 7, he talks about meaningless repetition. And I think there are many of us who understand what he's talking about here. Um, I know many in Calvary come from a Catholic background, and there is a lot of repetition in prayers. Right? There's a lot, I mean, I, from what I understand, that you can sin, and the priest will tell you how many times you're supposed to repeat the same prayer in order to pay for the sin that you did. And, you know, even in Islam, they will repeat the same prayer every day, five times a day. Not just repeating the same prayer, but facing the same direction when they pray, doing the same hand gestures when they pray, bowing at the same time, getting on their knees at the same time. I, I used to not pray because I didn't, I didn't know Arabic, um, but I used to always watch when my uncles and my other relatives would pray. And I could, not now anymore, but back then, I could do every movement, and I knew everything that they were going to do in the prayer. I knew when they were going to like cross their hands, when they were going to do like this. I don't know what, what that was doing, but that everything meant something. And but it was just this repetitious prayer that even though they took it seriously and they would do it in private, it was something that was meaningless. And so avoid that. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't persist in prayer about an issue. In fact, he even gives a parable in Luke chapter 11 right after that version of the Lord's Prayer comes a parable where he talks about a friend that keeps going to uh, his neighbor's house that keeps knocking on the door and saying, like, give me some bread. And he's like, no, go away because I'm, I'm in bed now with my wife and my kids and I can't help you. And because he kept knocking on the door over and over and begging to get some bread because he had a traveler from out of town and he had to be hospital too, then Jesus said, that's how you should be in prayer. 
that you keep approaching God. But in that case, it's not meaningless. It's not vain repetition, but that you're coming to God pouring out your heart. So he gives us these, these warnings. And, and so it's good to understand that this, that this instruction comes from the warnings here. Earlier he says, don't give to, to the poor in the way that the Pharisees do, the way that the hypocrites do. Don't pray the way that they do. Later on he'll say, don't fast the way that they fast. And essentially he's saying, don't live like that. They have been your model for holiness for all of your life, anyone who, who was around then, and he's saying for hundreds of years, they have been the model for holiness in Israel, and they're doing it wrong because their motive is to be seen. Their motive is the power that they get from doing this. So then in verse 9, he says, now let's, let's learn how to pray correctly. But in verse 8, I just want you to see one thing. He says, so do not be like them, the hypocrites, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. That is so important. So why are we praying? God already knows what we need. And so the first thing we realize about prayer is that it's not about informing God of something he doesn't know. We're not giving God information and just saying, hey, God, I heard this thing here. You know, like I got an itch to gossip. I can't tell anybody, so let me go tell God. You know, that, that's, that's not what it is. We're not giving God new information. We're not just saying, God, here's something you may not know. Maybe you want to do something about it. It's still going on, so you must not know. I know you're busy. You know, that's not what, what we're doing, right? It's about worship. It's about coming to God and being able to commune with him, something that they couldn't do. And so how does he start this, this model prayer? He says, pray then in, in verse 9. Our Father who is in heaven. Let's just stop there. So if I had my way, I would probably preach a separate sermon on every line here, but I don't think we have enough. To, or we just stay here, either one, one long sermon. But um, there's so much to say about this. But one thing that we see is that by addressing him as father, we get out of our, our minds that God is just a judge. He's just the creator. Or he's just the man upstairs, as my uh, grandfather used to call him. Or he's just a higher power. Or now today, we don't even have to call it a person. We just say the universe. And I, I don't know how the universe does things for you, but there are people who, I'll speak this and let it in the atmosphere and the universe will hear it and the universe will line things up and this will now be manifested in my life. And that's how, you know, we talk. And Christians are starting to adopt that language to describe what happens when we pray to God. But that's not what Jesus does here. Jesus says, call him Father. And that was something while the the idea had been expressed in the Old Testament. There are several places where the analogy of the, of the father-child relationship is used to describe God, but he's never been on a whole uh, national level in Israel seen as a father. And so this was very important, that we are coming to our father 
And before salvation, he was our creator. So every human is, is made in the image of God. But not every human is a child of God. Which is why the Bible talks about us being adopted. And actually in Galatians chapter 4, and you can turn there if you want. Uh, Galatians 4, 4 through 6 uh, says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. That we have now been adopted because of what Christ did. That he came and lived this life for us. And it's not just that we were made free. I mean, that would be great on its own if we were made free. If, if we were under the curse and then God said, <clears throat> because of what Christ did on that cross, you are no longer under this curse and my wrath no longer abides on you. And then just walks away. Now, now you're free. Go ahead. But that's not what God does. Right? He frees us and that he moves us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and says, now you're part of my family. Now you've been adopted. Now instead of my enemy, you're sitting at the table with me. And just, just that picture is what the Father is. Verse 6 of, of Galatians 4 <clears throat> says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, I mean, that's another, this term, and I think that a lot has been written on this. It's a, it's a term in, in certain dialects, um, just because there's controversy around it, because there's some uh, scholars who will say, it doesn't really mean that. It doesn't mean, and there are some dialects um, of Arabic where this is used. All the, the Muslims that I grew up with use Abby to talk, to call their father. Um, but it means, it, it means something like daddy. It shows a, a different level of intimacy. It's not just you're my biological father and it just means that a time in the past you and my mother came together one night and that's it. And who knows what, where you, what has been the relationship since then. But it talks about this intimacy, this trust that we can have in our God. That, that you can call him dad or daddy. And, the, and the, 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 all the sweetness of that relationship is poured into this word. The same word is used in Romans 8.15, also talking about adoption. And so Jesus is saying when we pray, understand who you're going to. And it doesn't mean you have to go through all of this every time and, and rehearse all of these scriptures, but this should be in your heart. And, and no, this is a model of prayer. We take it and, and do different things with it, right? Everybody doesn't just pray this, these exact words. There's nothing wrong with it if that's what comes out of your heart. But Jesus isn't saying these are the only words allowed in prayer. He isn't even saying that, that you have to use any of these words. You can actually pray a prayer and not say the word Father. It's okay. It's okay to not say Lord or to not say God. God is not going to be confused by who you're talking to. You can say those words a hundred times and don't know Christ, and your prayers have no effect. 
And you can pray a prayer any way you want, as simplistic as you want, or as complex as you want, and God will hear it. But understand when you come to him that he is, he is your father. And our relationship has changed now that we are believers. But that's not it. He doesn't just say father because then we would try to 100% model this, this uh, relationship between an earthly uh, father and a uh, heavenly father. But he says, who is in heaven? And so there is a distinction and actually in the next chapter, part of the same sermon, uh, in chapter 7, verses uh, 9 through 11, we're back in the book of Matthew, um, <clears throat> he says, Or what man is there among you who, when, he asks, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So how many people here are parents? I mean, I'm seeing some, but I don't know everybody's business. So, so it's a good amount of parents. So how many people are willing to stand up and say, I am an evil parent? All right, I had maybe one, so one person. So Dave and Denise are willing to do that. But for the most part, Part, we don't consider ourselves that. So first, when he says evil, he's only talking about in comparison to the perfect, pure goodness of God. You know, it's kind of like you find a substance that's sweeter than honey, and you describe it as being so sweet, it makes honey taste like a lemon. Honey doesn't taste like a lemon, but you get the idea. You get the idea of this is about God's greatness. Now, I'm not saying there's no evil parents out there, but what I am saying is that when he talks about evil, it's in comparison. But the point that he is really driving home is that God is not a human parent. And the amount of love that a human parent shows to his child is nothing in comparison to what our heavenly father shows to us. And and this is specifically talking about answering prayer. So he is in heaven. So this also shows us that God is our father and we have the intimate connection, but he is still the creator of the universe. He is still to be worshipped. He is still majestic and holy. And we are to come to him in worship. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We still have to come to God with reverence, even though there is this intimacy there. And we see that even on a human level. There are people who are in positions of power, who are rulers, and you see their children will have different relationships with them. Obviously, they can get close to them. But they still are the king or queen or the president, even though they are a mother or father. And so they still have that same level of authority that has to be respected on that level, even though there is a parent-child relationship there. So even though we can approach God with confidence, in some translations say boldness when you look at Hebrews 4.16, we are still to do so in a manner of reverence and respect. And I won't even stretch the sermon out by telling you all the 
kind of disrespectful, irreverent things I've heard people say because they feel like, well, we have an intimate relationship with God. And so that kind of closeness gets abused. So we want to make sure that we're still approaching God as God. This also means that he's powerful. He's in heaven. So he's not on earth. So while it's, it's, it's great to have relationships on earth with humans that you can talk to people, you have issues or problems, you can bring them to people, you can get counsel, you can get wisdom, you can get prayer, humans still have limitations. And so while it's great that I can pour my heart out to one of you, most, of, most likely you're not going to be able to do anything about whatever situation I brought to you. The difference here is our God is in heaven. Our God is sovereign. Our God can do whatever he wishes. And so we get this combination of this intimate, beautiful love combined with this unlimited power. Now, as we'll see in in a, a little while, what we pray for still has to be according to God's will. But know that you are praying to a God who can act. You're praying to a God who can actually do something about whatever you're praying about. You're not just praying to a God who's just a a glorified therapist or he's some cosmic counselor, but he is someone who can actually move. So if you need more faith, then go to God. God can help grow your faith. If you need a a, a stronger marriage, then what are you going to do? Are you going to complain to, to your friends about your spouse? Or you're going to go to God. So God is someone who can actually act. He can change hearts. Many of us, probably all of us who are here who are believers, know people who are not. Lift them up in prayer. Because God can draw them like he drew you and me. And he can save them. So lift them up in prayer. So Now we get to these requests. This is just opening up the, the, this is the the idea we should have before we come to God. Now we get to these requests, and there are people who will say, excuse me, that there are, some will say there are six, and some will say there are seven. From a practical standpoint, it really doesn't matter if there are six or seven, but if you read commentaries and things about it, you'll see some who say six and seven, and and that changes how they treat um, the final few words of this prayer. So the first thing that he says you should pray for is also in verse 9, hallowed be your name. And so this comes from a Greek word which means to be set apart or, or to treat something as holy. And so we're praying that God's name would be holier. Now in one sense it's not possible for God to grow in holiness. It's not possible for him to become more holy or more righteous. But we are praying that we and others around us will become more aware and more responsive to his holiness. It's just like in in Psalm 34, I believe it's 34.3, where the psalmist says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. You're not actually making God bigger in God's view. You're making God bigger in your view. And for other people, the more you praise God, the more you talk about God, the more you live a godly life and you 
give people the gospel, the more you come alongside your brothers and sisters, you are making God bigger. You are making his name holier. It's, it's if you have been around a place, and I say what types, but any place that needs high security, and if they choose to use an electric fence, you'll see a lot of signs warning you about that electric fence. There'll be caution, there'll be the little uh, triangle, there'll be a bunch of bolts if you can't read the words, they'll be in multiple languages. Those signs do nothing to increase the voltage that's running through the fence. But what those signs do is make you aware of the power that's in the fence so that you know you have to approach it carefully. And that's what we do when we pray, God, hallowed be your name. Make your name holy. You are saying, please, put a big sign on me that says God is holy. Then, moving to verse 10, we get another uh, petition. Your kingdom come. And so... While I can't go into everything, this means um, I'll do a little advertising for the website here that there was a Sunday school lesson, June 3rd, 2012, that was given, and the title was Your Kingdom Come. And it was about this very thing. So just go on the website if you want to hear that. You get an hour long um, of listening to what it means when uh, we're told to pray Your Kingdom Come. So just you know, a little plug there, calvaryem.org. You know, just go there and uh, you can listen to it. It's it's me teaching it. I don't know if that matters or not. <laughs> I don't know if I should have said that. <laughs> Probably we'll get no hits on the site today. But um, but yeah, you can go there and see. And actually, there was a series that we did that year in Sunday school, going through the Lord's Prayer and different men in the church took different parts of it and taught through that. Um, so we told actually in the end of this chapter, um, in verse 33, to seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. And we are praying here, your kingdom come. So whatever it means, it has to be a high priority. Because he says in the same sermon that you should seek first the kingdom. Before you worry about these other, in the context of that, before you worry about these other things, what are you going to eat? What are you going to wear? You worry about the cares of life and these, these kind of daily things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all those things will be added unto it. God will care for you the way he cares for the, for the flowers and the way he cares for the, for the birds. They don't worry about those things, but God always provides for them. He'll provide for you. So seek the kingdom first. And here we're praying that the kingdom come. And so what does that mean? There are several things that, that um, I think are kind of baked into this. The first one is expansion. So we are praying that God's kingdom will come by him actually growing the kingdom physically. That the gospel will go out and that people will be saved and added to the kingdom. So the kingdom will grow by numbers. So expansion. 
is the first thing that we're praying for. We're praying for our evangelistic efforts. We're praying for those who are lost that we know. And we're praying for others who go out, those who are kingdom workers throughout the world, as well as people on our jobs everywhere. We're praying for people to be able to send the gospel out and that people will respond to it. God will change hearts and add to his kingdom. And in that sense, his kingdom will will come. We're also praying for maturation. We're praying for saints who have already come into the kingdom to grow and to be more mature, to be every day conformed into the image of Christ. And so that's the second thing. So first we're praying for expansion. We're praying for maturation. And next we're praying for consummation. We're praying that Christ will come and establish his actual kingdom on earth. So there is an element where we're looking forward and we're longing Uh, In Revelation 22.20, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. That's the promise that Christ gives. And then the response from John is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In Titus 2.13, we are told that we should be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So we're praying for God's kingdom to come in these ways in our lives today, and we're also praying for the future for us to see the kingdom come. We'll be in that kingdom. Then the next petition says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we kind of mentioned earlier, prayer is not a way to bend God's heart to our will. It's not us giving him information and saying, now act the way we want you to act. But it's a, a, a way and a chance for us to submit our desires to God's plan and to God's will. And also for us to be a part of him carrying out his will on earth. So there's a couple of things with, with this. Um, when he says your will be done, it's not a kind of a giving up. We're not just reluctantly accepting his will because we see our situation as hopeless, so whatever the hopeless outcome is, that must be his will. And it's just like, okay, you know, kind of like when uh, Samuel went to Eli and he told him, okay, God is going to remove you from being priest because you haven't been faithful in this role. And then Eli said, okay, well, I guess if it's, if it's God's will. And I don't know if that was the exact tone he used, but uh, when you read the passage, that's what it seems like. It doesn't seem like, you know, whatever God wants, that's what I'm going to do. I can serve him faithfully somewhere else. It just, you know, seems like he gave up and said, okay, I mean, whatever, take it. So it's not, we're not that, it's a way for us to be a part of him carrying out his will. And, and that's what a big part of our prayers are. Because whether we pray about it or not, God can still act. God's not waiting and saying, boy, I wish Dwayne would bring that thing to me because I'm just going to sit here because I'm not going to do anything. I want to see his brother saved, but he didn't pray about it. So I just, I can't save him until we pray. That's not what's happening. But think about how glorious it is that we can pray and then see God work and see God answer the prayer. That's why it's even so beautiful when you look at the, the prayer list that we have here and we get to see that we can praise God for answering things that we've brought to him. There are people here who are sitting in the pews now who are answers to prayers. I'm thinking about one, I'm not going to call them out, but there are people here that I know that 
many of us have been praying about, whether it was salvation or whether it was healing for something, or whether it was just them growing, or whether it was them being able to get a different shift at work so they could come to church, whatever it is, we lifted it up and God was faithful and answered. And we should be praising God for that because we get to be a part of his will being carried out. So the one thing he says is, is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is it carried out in heaven? Perfectly. God's will is carried out perfectly. When he sends an angel to do something, the angel doesn't say, mm, I've had a long day. All right, maybe, maybe tomorrow, God, I can get some sleep, catch up on Game of Thrones a little bit. Is that, that still come on? I don't know. Is that a thing? I don't know. Okay. I, I don't really watch TV, so my references may be a little behind, but, um, you know, you get the idea that God's will is carried out perfectly. He doesn't, they, they don't do what we do. I mean, part of it is they don't have the limitations that, that we do. We're wrapped in these sinful bodies, and we can't carry out his will perfectly, even when we want to. Sometimes we just physically can't. We can only be in so many places at a time. We can only do so many things. So it isn't always just a sinful thing that stops us. Sometimes it's just because we're human, and we are actually limited. And so when we carry out God's will with full obedience, with joy, with urgency, and with sinless motivations, then we're doing God's will as it's done in heaven. But also there's a sense in, in which this carries a longing for God's kingdom to come, for a time when we can carry out his will perfectly, when we are re fully redeemed, we are in glorified bodies, and we can do anything without limitation without our sinful limitation or without the limitations of our flesh. And we could carry out his will perfectly. And we are waiting for that day to come. But until then, we are still striving and longing to be as perfect as we can in carrying out his will. And even in the imperfect way that we do it, we are still to be faithful. And God will bless that faithfulness. He'll provide what's lacking when we go and try to minister to somebody. We don't have to be perfect at something in order for God to be able to use us in it. But we have to be willing, we have to be faithful. So now comes these uh, kind of quick petitions about our provision. So the first one, it says, give us this day our daily bread. And what makes this a little hard, if you're studying it, is this word that's translated daily is only used here. There's nowhere else in all of Greek literature where this word exists. And so we have to kind of guess what it means. It's a compound word. It's two Greek words that are used a lot put together. And so um, here, you know, we just kind of have to figure out what it is. And so daily is a, is a good kind of approximation of what it means. It can literally be translated belonging to tomorrow. And so we still get this idea of our provision only coming when we need it. So uh, there's a quote by uh, D.L. Moody. And he says, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough for the next six months. 
or take sufficient air into his lungs at one time to sustain life for a week. We must draw upon God's boundless store of grace from day to day as we need it. And this is actually a beautiful thing because it allows us to continually rely on God. And we remember our dependence on God. So we ask for him to to supply all of the things that we will need for that day. And these are, God provides everything, but we have to remember he provides even the physical. Nothing is too small or mundane to ask God for. I mean, do do you understand that? I'm still learning that. It took me a while to even get to be able to say that because I always feel like I'm kind of, oh, that's so petty. With all the things going on that I know about, why am I going to waste time praying about this little thing? That seems so selfish. But Jesus says, pray for your daily bread. Pray that in everything he will give you what you need for that day. And we need physical things. We need rest. We need food. We need shelter. Right? We, we need these things to be able to survive the way that our bodies are built. And so pray for those things. There's nothing wrong with praying. There's nothing wrong with going for a promotion at work and praying about it and asking others to pray about it. There's nothing wrong with that. And so we need to make sure that we are seeing God as our provider in everything, not just in the big things or in the spiritual things only. And I think this is why this is here. He's talking about literal bread. Now, um, I, I believe that he uses the term, that he uses bread to remind us that God will supply our needs. And he doesn't promise to give us our wants. It doesn't mean we can't pray for things that we just want. But whatever you hear from the kind of health and wealth, prosperity uh, teachers that says that God will give you whatever you want as long as you have enough faith, even if you want a private jet or you want a yacht, just because you want it, God will give it to you. Well, yachts exist and private jets exist, and God may choose to give you one for some reason. But I don't know anyone who has a yacht or a private jet, personally. Um, okay, I do know someone with a private jet, but I don't know anybody with a yacht. <laughs> so most likely you're not going to get an uh, uh, affirmative answer to that prayer. You'll get an answer. The answer will be no. But you'll have your daily bread for that day. And you'll have a way to get to where you need to go to do what God has ordained you to do. We don't pray for our daily four-course meal. right? We're not praying for a daily chocolate cake or ice cream or prime rib. We're praying for daily bread. Now, we can pray for those things too, but Jesus is saying this is how you should pray. You want to extend your prayer and add those things on as well? Then you can do that, but make sure that you are seeing God as the provider of everything, no matter what you're praying for. Then he moves on to something spiritual, and he says, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Now, here, and I actually, you know, wrestled with this some because I've always taken this and actually verses 14 and 15, which I'll read. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. And so it almost sounds like it says the way to earn God's forgiveness is to forgive other people. So it could sound like whatever you do with the gospel doesn't really matter that much as long as you're forgiving other people. As long as you're being a good person and you forgive other people, God is obligated to forgive you. And we understand it's not what he's saying because we just say as Christians, that just doesn't sound right. But we need to understand what he is saying here. And so, first, understanding he's, uh, the, the context of this is that he is warning true followers not to follow the ways of these uh, false teachers and these ones who, who are hypocrites. And so if, if it's people praying who are believers, and we can call God our Father, then the, the, what's being forgiven here is not our sinful nature. But we sin throughout our lives, even after we become believers. And if any of you were here uh, many months ago when I preached on John 13, and we took a look at uh, the foot washing and how that was a, an example, an illustration that, that Jesus used about salvation and sanctification. And basically he said, you have been cleansed already. You start out being cleansed in your Christian life, but then in your walk, you know, you're walking on these dusty, dirty roads, you get somewhere and your feet are now dirty. And then you need to wash your feet. You need to be sanctified. You need to be cleansed. And that is what we're looking at here. In um, 1 John 1, 9, it says that we confess our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, there he's talking to believers. So as believers, we are still to go to God to ask for forgiveness of the sins that we continually commit. And the reason being is because those things interfere with our relationship with God. Our fellowship with God becomes broken when we sin. I mean, you ever notice when you sin and you don't bring it to God that it's harder to pray? It's harder to, to read the Bible. It's harder even to serve people. Sometimes you may get bitter when you're asked to do things. And, and that happens because we don't have right fellowship with God. Because we're sinning and we're not bringing those things to him to be cleansed and to grow. And so when that confession isn't happening, then we, we see that our, our, our relationship stops. Our relationship is, is stunted. There's, there's interference in the line. When we refuse to forgive others, the same thing happens. And we can't look at it now, but in Matthew 18... Uh, in, I believe, verse 22 to 35, um, there is a parable of a, a, of a slave who owes the king an amount of money that is just larger than anything we can think of, and the king forgives the debt. And then that slave, happy about his forgiven debt, goes and sees someone who owes him a minuscule amount of money, and that person actually uses the same phrase to, to ask for forgiveness of the debt as that slave used for the king. And that slave who was forgiven refused to forgive uh, that person who owed him that little bit of money. And so when the king found out, the Bible, Jesus said, um, and it is the parable, that 
he was thrown in jail and turned over to the tormentors. And it's, it's one thing to note that he wasn't turned over to the executioners. He was turned over to the tormentors. He was turned over to those who would chastise him. In the same way that Hebrews uh, 12, 5 through 7 says that we are chastised uh, by God, our loving Father. When we fall into sin, we are corrected. And sometimes that comes not only in instruction, but sometimes that comes in chastisement. And so this, us refusing to forgive people puts us in a situation where we're now being chastised by God until we are willing to forgive. And so not having that connection with God means that that's when the guilt comes. And that's when all those things come that are meant to draw us back to God. And then to get right with our brothers and sisters. And so we should always be forgiving people because that's how we make sure we are in right fellowship with God. Because he offers us this forgiveness that we have to forgive others. Because there's no one in here who has offended us the way we offended God. In fact, there's no one in here who has offended us the way that we forgive, that we offend God now as believers. We still offend him worse than anybody can do us. Today, you're going to offend God worse than anything anyone could do to you. And when you go to him and ask for forgiveness, if you are one of his children, he will forgive you. So how could you not forgive someone else if they come to you? And that's what this prayer is. So it acknowledges our, our role in forgiving others and also our uh, obligation to do that, to make sure that our communication, our fellowship with God remains as pure and open as possible. Then he uh, prays, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now this is the one where people say this can be combined as one or it can be treated as two. So as you can see, in a practical sense, it doesn't really mean much. But I just want you to be aware when you see someone saying six, someone saying seven, that one isn't a heretic. It's just this but here is making someone say this is a separate one, and someone else saying, nah, it's not separate. So do not lead us into temptation. Again, is he saying that God, if we don't pray this, will tempt us and will try to get us to sin, just to keep us on our toes? No. James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Again, the, the Greek word here that's translated as temptation can also be translated as trial, trial or test. And actually, when uh, one of the, I believe it was one of the scribes, um, later on in Matthew, jumps up and asks Jesus a question to test him, this is the word that's used there. But there it's translated test. He, he put Jesus in a situation that was meant to apply some pressure so that he might get tripped up. And so it was a test because of the pressure. And in that case, it, he, that person meant it for something negative. But that type of testing, that type of trials, you know, that we count it all joy, joy when we find ourselves in, in various trials, this, that's the word that's used. And so... It, it's not here talking about 
God is putting us in a situation where most likely we're going to sin. But it's talking about these, these trials that come. And the prayer here isn't so much that he wouldn't lead us into a test or trial at all, but it's one that perhaps we're not ready for. Perhaps one that may be unnecessary in a sense. We're, we're praying that more for us that any time that we're led into a, a trial, into a test, that it be something that's ordained by God and it be something that's, that's for us to grow. And so the prayer here isn't even to say, I want to avoid all suffering. Because if we try to avoid all suffering, we're going to be useless. The Bible says that everyone who is a believer will suffer persecution, right? If you live godly, you'll suffer persecution. The whole book of 1 Peter is teaching us how to deal with suffering in different situations. And so we are going to to suffer. You know, there's that saying that says that a, a boat that doesn't leave the dock is safe. But a boat that doesn't leave the dock is useless. Unless you're just partying on a boat and you're not doing anything. It's not taking you anywhere. It's not serving the, the, the purpose for which it was built. And so when we try to live this safe life, we're not serving the purpose for which we were redeemed and saved. We're not going out and trusting God. And so in this also is, is asking for strength and faith. So in verse 8, he already said that God knows what we need. So if a test is something that we need to grow, then God will send the test. But according to uh, 1 Corinthians 10:13, the Bible says that he'll provide a way of escape. And sometimes that way of escape is just endurance. The way of escape isn't always removing you from the situation. Sometimes it's giving you the grace to handle it. But you're given a way to escape without sinning. You can be in a situation and you could come out of it without having sinned. And so this is what we're praying for. Then the last thing it says, deliver us from evil. So again, this prayer, this petition has a desire for both immediate and future fulfillment. We want to be delivered from evil and and actually it could be translated deliver us from the evil one. And depending on your translation, it may say the evil one. Um, We are asked to be protected from evil and sin daily. Peter tells us to, to, to always look about because Satan goes around like a, like a roaring lion, right? He seeks to devour us. So we should always be ready. We should always be watching. And we're asking to be delivered from those things, to be delivered from evil. Listen, there is nothing wrong with praying that we can avoid the worst of a situation. There is nothing wrong with praying that a person who is ill will be healed. You know, we shouldn't be so holy that we just sit and say, oh, it must be God's will, and I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't care if God heals you. It must be, must be his will for you to be ill like that, to, for you to fall into. No, we pray for healing. We understand that God knows what we need. And if something about that illness or that sickness is going to cause you to be drawn closer to Christ or others to be drawn closer or others to be, to be uh, uh, soften their heart to be able to hear the gospel, and receive it, then that's what's going to happen. 
But as humans, our desires to see us and our brothers and sisters avoid that pain and suffering as much as possible because that's human nature. And so it's, it's, it's not much different than Jesus praying that that cup pass him, but then saying, but not my will, your will be done. Then he ends with this uh, look back to God's holiness. And this is where we're in. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Brings us back. Their book ends. God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's glory. And he adds one that we alluded to already, the power. And we talked about that with God being in heaven and having power. But we see that No matter what the prayer is, no matter what, if it's a prayer of distress, we still should be thinking about God's holiness. It's amazing to look at the Psalms, and I actually was contemplating preaching from Psalm 73, so that may be a good exercise for the week, read Psalm 73. Um, What you'll see in many of the Psalms, with that one in particular, is a prayer of lament at first. You know, he's praying that why are the wicked thriving? Why do I see them doing well? And then I'm not. I'm trying to live holy. And I'm suffering. But these people are wicked, and I see them prospering. And nothing bad happens to them. And then he's, if there's a turn. And he says, and I think in this one he says, but then I entered the sanctuary. And from there, it turns into praise. And he is praising God because he knows what the future brings for all those who are holy. And he knows that even those who live ungodly lives uh, will be punished as well if they don't come and, and repent. And so it's this beautiful scene that no matter what the prayer is, he's coming saying, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And then, so wait, but I remember who God is. I think Psalm 77 is the same way. And then he says, well, I will remember. And they're always called back to remember what was done, what God has done, who God is. And that's what we are called to do. So no matter what we're praying about, no matter how long or short, we're in a hospital by somebody's bed. I don't want you systematically trying to go through this Lord's Prayer. I want you focused on praying for that person in the hospital bed. I want you focused on praying for that person whose marriage, it seems like it's going to fall apart. But in doing so, remember who God is. And still bring all these things in your mind, in your heart. That even if these words don't come out of your mouth, this is, you know who God is. You know who you're praying to. Let's pray now. Amen. Our great God and Father, we just come to you, giving you all reverence, all honor and praise. We thank you for you giving us this model, for teaching us how to pray, teaching us why to pray. And giving us prayer as a gift, allowing us to be used by you to see mighty things happen. We pray, God, that you would use this text, we would use your word to change the way that we pray, to change the way that we think about our problems, to change the way that we approach you. I pray, God, that you will be glorified by what we say and do. And I pray that you will close this service and that our fellowship after would be sweet. And I ask this in Christ's name.
Amen.